Welcome to another podcast of the Apologist Bookshelf. I'm Gary Zacharias. I want to continue with the previous podcast. I was looking at The God Conversation by J.P. Moreland and Tim Muehlhoff, and I want to start in on their actual sections of the book in which they take on challenges to Christianity. Uh, the first section was, how can there be a good God with all the pain and evil? The second section was religious pluralism, or don't all roads lead to God? third one is on the resurrection. Why would we believe something that happened 2,000 years ago? Fourth section is uh, relativism. Is that true? And the last section, aren't we just accidents? That's what evolution has told us. So I thought for this one, and I may even do another one on this because this section is big, but it's can we trust in a good God when there's terrorism? And they just start off, again, remember what they're trying to do in this book is to give a lot of stories and illustrations to explain our faith. And they actually start by thinking about suffering, um, 9-11, the attack, uh, tsunamis, roadside bombs, uh, students killed by somebody coming into their classroom and shooting it up and uh, destroying people's lives and ruining so many people. And said that obviously brings a question to mind. Is God immune to our suffering? Why, why did he allow evil to enter the world? And where was he on 9-11? Why doesn't he put an end to pain and suffering? And they even use Woody Allen here in the intro. The only thing you can say about God, says Woody Allen, is that he's an underachiever. Yeah, it's kind of funny, except it hurts when you hear that. And he said, uh, they say that we really should be, as Christians, ready to explain to others how there can be a good God in a world of turmoil. And that's exactly right. And they uh, have an illustration here of C.S. Lewis. And we think of him as a champion of the faith. But he was devastated when his wife died. And he wrote a book, uh, A Grief Observed, and he talks about where is God. He said, go to him when your need is desperate and all other help is in vain. What do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that, silence. You may as well turn away. That's really powerful, huh? And so they say what you might want to do is start off by just asking your friend, can you relate to that? And everybody can. Have you ever felt betrayed by God? Does suffering make you want to yell at God? What kind of questions does suffering bring up? And so what you're doing there at that point in the conversation is just showing that you empathize with other people and that feelings are important, that we struggle with the same things. I just think that's so awful when we're talking about something like pain and suffering to pretend that we have all the answers, that we don't go through those kinds of agonizing questions ourselves. Of course we do. And so we can communicate immediately that it's both Christians and non-Christians that wrestle with it. And they said, but we've got to be able to at least come up with some kind of answers. And uh, they said they have several questions in the chapter, and they're not in any particular order. But I'd like to go through them the way they've done them here because I think it makes a lot of sense. So their first question is, why did God allow the possibility of evil and suffering? And they said, we need to think about God's perspective for just a minute. He says, if we want to understand the world that God's created, we need to know the choices that were available to him. Would God create a world of robots that could never disobey him or create human beings who could? And uh, they quote Norm Geisler, a Christian philosopher, to be free, we had to have not only the opportunity to choose good, but also the ability to choose evil. That was the risk God knowingly took. 
And then here comes their first really effective example here as they start this chapter. They talked about something called the Mr. Wonderful doll. And I thought this was a joke, but I looked it up online. There really is a Mr. Wonderful doll. He's 12 inches tall, he's handsome, and he's sensitive, and he's programmed. He has 16 phrases that he can say. You push a button and you'll hear things like this. You take the remote as long as I'm with you. I don't care what we watch. Here's another thing that you push and you'll hear. The ball game's not that important. I'd rather spend time with you. Here's another one. Why don't we go to the mall? Didn't you want some shoes? Here's another one. You know, I think it's really important to talk about our relationship. Here's one more. You've been on my mind all day. That's why I bought you these flowers. And I said, it's so nice. He never disappoints. He's never irritable, never sarcastic or selfish. You just keep putting those batteries in and he'll affirm you and he'll compliment you. And it says, uh, for people who are married, it's understandable why that would be a desirable uh, doll to have. And it said, God could have done the same thing. So here's where the illustration gets back to the question about evil and pain and suffering. God could have created a world of wonderful human dolls. Each time God pressed our button, we'd say things like, God, you've been on my mind all day. So long as I'm with you, God, I don't care what we do. God, you're holy, perfect, and worthy of my love. God, I would never disobey you. So that's true. God could have created us like that. There'd be no evil. All these things would not be part of our programming. We would just continually fawn over God. But here's the question you can ask your friend. Would a relationship with a doll like that really satisfy if you were God? Can you think of any drawbacks? Of course. Is a mindless compliment enough for somebody? They quote Jean-Paul Sartre, the atheist thinker. He, th- he thought that was crazy to have that kind of programmed response. He said, the man who wants to be loved does not desire the enslavement of the beloved. He's not bent on becoming the object of passion which flows forth mechanically. He does not want to possess an automaton. So if you know that your lover has been programmed to love you, is that love? Would you want that at all? That cheapens it. And they say God agrees that he paid the human race the greatest compliment we could receive. He did not program us to mechanically love him. Uh, think about Jesus. You know, they, they have this illustration in here. Jesus is standing on the outskirts of Jerusalem. And he looks at the city. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks. But then he says, you were not willing. That's in Matthew 23. So look at that. God yearns for our uh, connection. He yearns for our acknowledgement of him, for our love of him. He yearns for that, but we can walk away from it. So we've created our own pain pain and evil in this world because we've turned our back. So there's one question answered. Here's the second question. Since there's so much evil in the world today, why doesn't God just stop it? Just put an end to it. And I said, okay, paint a picture. When you're talking to somebody that's asked that question, paint a picture. What would that look like if God did that, if he stopped all evil? And then here's our next big illustration. So suppose God announces next Monday, midnight, he's going to stop in, uh, step in, and he's going to stop all suffering caused by evil people. Well, let's say he decides he's got a taser gun. That's how he's going to do it. It's just a temporary high voltage uh, shock. And you got a lot of pain, but you're kind of dazed. You drop to the ground, and that's it. And you can get the person to do anything. So when that deadline comes, God is out there with his taser. So if you start to tell a lie, 
you're hit with a half-second zap. Oh, boy, if you try to rob a person, you get two seconds of shock. A would-be murderer is hit even harder. Man, God zaps us for bad thoughts, but he's not finished. Evil is also things that we fail to do when we've given the opportunity to do good. So he zaps us for failing to show mercy, or we don't show kindness when we could, or justice. So as a result, people are zapped for doing evil acts or even thinking evil thoughts and not doing what's right. So what's the result that you would get in that kind of world? It's going to be a world of twitchy people. They obey God like a cowering, beaten dog. Do you see what's going on there? You can talk to your friend this way, that individuals, yeah, they'd be morally good, but out of fear. That's out of fear. You're not affecting the person's heart. You're just, they're reacting out of fear of pain. So they said you you want to change an attitude. You want to change a heart. If God's shocking people all the time when they do evil, he's going to get people that pretend to, to care for them. They'll act virtuous, but down deep, they're still ugly people. And uh, somebody once said, uh, J.B. Phillips said, it's worth noting that the whole point of Christianity lies not in interference with the human power to choose, but in producing a willing consent to choose good rather than evil. Another thing that God doesn't, uh, why he doesn't set a deadline for ending evil is that evil forces us to come face to face with this world and all of the bad things that have gone on in it. And they use a another illustration here from C.S. Lewis. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. So we can use that illustration of a megaphone. That's the only way we can rouse people in many cases. House on fire at night, we, we get a megaphone or microphone. And so this is arousing a deaf world. Uh, God lets evil continue because then it forces us to ask the why questions here. Uh, let me skip ahead. How about question number three? Is God immune to our suffering? Is God immune to our suffering? How does God feel when, uh, for example, a building crash, uh, crashes to the ground and kills people or a, a plane slams into a building? Can he empathize with our grief? Now, you know, empathy is projecting ourselves into the perspective of somebody else so we can feel and understand how that person views things. And so here comes another wonderful illustration of empathy. And I bet you've heard the story, or at least some of the story, Father Damien. Uh, Catholic priest, he made a request. He was assigned to a leper colony on Molokai Island, Hawaii in 1873. They had no priest. They had no medical doctor. And he just thought, how, how terrible. People are living the last days of their lives with nobody to care. So he did everything for those people. He bathed them. He dressed their ulcers. He built coffins. He dug graves. He held worship services. He was there for 12 years. And then one Sunday, everything changed. He opened his robes in front of the congregation to show the first signs of leprosy. And he started his sermon with the words, We lepers. Isn't that interesting? And I said, Do you think the lepers' view of Father Damien changed after the announcement? Up until then, they, they, they knew that he was a nice guy and he really tried to care for them. He, but he was healthy. And now he's one of them. So is that at all the way God is in relationship with us? Is he an outsider who tries to empathize? Or has he personally experienced our pain? Well, what do we say? He has experienced it. He came into this world. He put on human flesh. 
And they quote Isaiah here in Isaiah 53 that the Messiah would be a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. So this belief is crucial that God has suffered, sets Christianity apart from any other religion. So God is willing to enter this world and he's, he's rolling his sleeves up and he's come alongside of us. And because Jesus has shared in our sufferings, then we can be assured that he sympathizes with us when we're dealing with a world that has a lot of pain and suffering. They end the chapter here with another interesting story. Three men stand before God's throne on Judgment Day, and each one has a score to settle. One says, I was hanged for a crime I didn't commit. Another one says, I died from a disease that went on and on for months, left me broken in both body and spirit. The third one said, my son was killed in the prime of his life when a drunk behind the wheel jumped the curb, ran him down. So each one was angry, and they wanted to give God a piece of his mind. So when they reached the throne, they get ready to speak up and say to God, how dare you? But they looked and they saw their judge had nail-scarred hands and feet and a wounded side. And I said, each mouth was stopped. Why? Why? What silenced them? They came face to face with a God who suffered the kind of injustice, the kind of physical suffering and tragedy that they had described. After all, Christ was innocent. He was unjustly sentenced to a brutal death and his body was broken. And his spirit was tormented. God turned his back on him. And then three years into his public ministry, while in his prime, a young man, his life came to a violent end. And so at the end of the chapter, they said, whatever conclusion a person comes to concerning the problem of pain, one fact is clear. God doesn't need to project himself into our pain. He experienced it. He doesn't just empathize. He's been there. So that's the first chapter of the book, Dealing with Pain and Suffering. There's one more chapter that deals with that. And I think I'll cover that one as well. So they've broken the chapter, uh, there are two chapters dealing with the issue of pain and suffering. So once again, the, the book is called The God Conversation. I hope you can see what they're trying to do is give us pictures, give us illustrations of these uh, wonderful concepts, in this case, that God does care about us in the middle of pain and suffering. All right, thanks. We'll do another podcast soon.